when you create a service or a product for a customer, it has to make sure that it's actually solving a customer issue. So that, that, that changes how you communicate, that changes how you interact, and that changes the value that you should be bringing to your customer. I've become a, a little bit more focused on being hyper-segmented to meeting customers or clients' needs, so being, being hyper-segmented versus saying, if you're under 25, all 100,000 of you act this way, maybe there's pockets of five, eight, 10,000 that have specific needs. Hello and welcome to VNext Remix by Veritrend. This is your podcast to understand how digital technologies are disrupting traditional finance as we know it. I'm your host, Katie Janos-Small, the CEO and founder of Upana. And in each episode, I speak to leaders at the front lines of digital transformation to help you understand what's coming up. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Daniel Kennedy. Daniel's Vice President for Distribution at Scotiabank. So what's distribution, you'll ask? Effectively, Daniel oversees sales, service, and productivity across all channels. Daniel has worked with Scotiabank for a long time, more than 20 years across retail, business, and digital banking, and from a number of Latin American countries. Today, he's back at HQ in Toronto. So Daniel, hi, it's such a pleasure to have you here. Welcome to Venix Remix. Thank you, Katie. I'm really excited to be here and it's great to reconnect with you. And thank you for the opportunity of speaking with you and, and hopefully sharing some nuggets of something with your with your listeners. Hopefully the nuggets of gold, not nuggets of horse droppings. We'll see. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the nuggets of gold. <laughs> let's um let's start with the big picture. Daniel, what are some of the big trends, some of the big changes that you are seeing when it comes to how clients are managing their finances? in the digital world? Good goodness, where do I start? <laughs> so so to, to help give you and your listeners some context, my focus um, is strictly Latin America. So any and all comments I have are really for, um, based on the learnings that I've, I've drawn from what our clients are telling us they need and what our clients are doing on their mobile devices and through their web browsers in principally four countries in Colombia, in Peru, Mexico, and Chile. Um, I think that there's, there, there's an overall trend which continues to be pushed by what I call the Amazonification of everything, which means that people are desiring, and, and it's, it's been a continued trend for the last four or five years, they want their relationship with anything, finances in particular, to be as simple as Amazon, right? So that means that when you create a service or a product for a customer, it has to make sure that it's actually solving a customer issue. So that, that, that changes how you communicate, that changes how you interact, and that changes the value that you should be bringing to your customer. So uh, where we are moving very diligently is ensuring that we are simplifying our messaging, that we are trying to be more empathetic as to when we proactively communicate. So instead of bombarding customers with constant emails on product offerings, it's being very, very judicious and saying, hey, Katie, you've just purchased a flight to New Zealand. Instead of offering you a mortgage, let's see if you're interested in travel insurance. So it's the, the big picture is, is trying to be very, very empathetic um, to what the customers want from their bank while recognizing that we're a bank. Right. So, so it's, it's not like 
we're going to be able to uh, necessarily help them go and see a theater show. But we are there to see if we can solve some of their more challenging financial issues. So that, that, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, we are seeing that there continues to be a very, very strong re requirement for financial education in Latin America um, and also for the use of cash. In some countries, cash, uh, use, cash use is declining, but it's being replaced by electronic transfers, right? So, so cash-like payments in real time versus the use of credit cards. Um, and we have to be there and ensure that our services, digital and digital, um, continue to support those customer needs. Daniel, I'm interested by what you mentioned about the cash uh, and the cash equivalents. Um, you said that you're seeing electronic transfers that imitate cash. Can you talk a little more about, about that trend that you're seeing and, and, and how Scotiabank is adapting to that? Sure. So um, I'll give you kind of two examples. Um, one is some outstanding innovative work that's been done by our digital bank in Peru where they've partnered with other banks for a payment and transfer ecosystem. And I, I think it's, uh, um, it's, it's kind of a closed loop. And what that allows people to do is provide instant time uh, payments. So if you and I go to lunch, um, you pay because I forgot my wallet and I go back to my office and I'm able to instantly transfer you $25 to cover my part of the bill. Um, and they've been able to do that in Peru by partnering, I believe, with two or three other banks and creating an ecosystem of a number of millions of clients. I'm going to get the number wrong, but I think it's between 1.5 and 2 million um, that allows them to, to do instant transfer and dispersal without having to wait for two or three days and the back office process to keep up. That's one example. The other example is in Chile, where the entire industry has been doing this for years. Uh, and, then, and so the industry, I would think back in 2008, moved very strongly towards um, electronic payments and electronic transfers and real-time disbursements of transfers, because that did a couple of things. It helped reduce check fraud, which is a big issue in, in, in Chile, but more importantly, it helped ensure that the payment and tax uh, ecosystem in Chile continue to be strong. So what you there, what you have there is a very, very well-established ecosystem where you can pay using QR codes, where you can pay through electronic transfers, where, where, you, where you can use real-time movement of cash between accounts without actually having to pull out your debit card, go to an ATM, take funds out, and then pay. And that, that's been extraordinarily successful. So in Chile, I would guess that most of the large finance institutions have less than four or five percent of cash transactions actually in branches because the cash is going out of every other uh, channel except that. So ATMs, point of service products, um, and then transfers from cell phone to cell phone. It's quite an interesting trend, right? And and you mentioned earlier that you're being more or you're trying to be more um, specific in the communications, right? That you see that a client has taken an action and you you follow up with a with an offer of something that's related to that. So how how does how does that get affected or how does that work with these new ways of paying and these new payment ecosystems that are maybe not entirely based around Scotiabank? So I think this is where um it comes back to what I said at the beginning, and that is recognize that we have to be there to help solve our customers' issues, right? So um, in the countries where we operate, cash continues to be king. 
And if we are looking to have cache-like features on our phone, we have to recognize that we can't have closed ecosystems that are strictly uh, just for Scotiabank customers. Because in although we have significant presences in all the markets that I mentioned, we are not 100% of the market. And it's very possible that going back to the same example, if you and I go for lunch, you are not necessarily a Scotiabank customer. So what we're doing is we are allowing our customers to interact with their funds the way they want to, which is critical. We're helping them solve an issue that is their issue, not our issue. But at the same time, we are seeing a significant reduction in our cost of transaction. So, so we're, we're, we're very diligent in looking at the unit, unit economics of the work we do. And we have been very successful in continuing to meet our customers' needs have outstanding NPS in the transaction space, but also reducing the cost of those transactions. What are some of the, you mentioned some of the big picture trends uh, across the region. What are, how do they sort of vary by demographic though, right? Like what do you see the younger generations and the older generations interacting with their finances differently? Sure. Uh, I, I think, you know, if, if, if we talk about um, it, there was there was a time when 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 maybe it still is when, when the millennials were were on everybody's lips because everybody wanted to market to and sell to and work with millennials, a little bit more focused on being hyper segmented to meeting customers or clients' needs. So being being hyper segmented versus saying if you're under 25, all hundred thousand of you act this way. Maybe there's pockets of five, eight, ten thousand that have specific needs. So we're beginning to build the data to teach us about that. What we tend to see is that um, the, the same demographic trends that were true pre-digital banking are true now. So Daniel Kennedy, the 22-year-old who's just out of university, has different uses for his funds than Katie, who might be uh, married with two children and is looking to continue to build her personal portfolio, right? So if I'm young and dumb and out of school, I'm looking for an awesome credit card so I can go party with my friends, and you might be looking for investment vehicles. The gap that we see, and I think it's accurate to see it in the four countries that I've mentioned, is that financial education is a considerable driver um, independent of demographics. So Daniel Kennedy, who's young and dumb, if I don't have a good role model of how to save, how to build financial wealth, I might continue to think that a savings account is a good financial vehicle for my financial stability when I get old. And that's true in a number of the countries where we operate. Versus if Katie has had a family member, a father, a mother who's been very good at investing, what be it in turn deposits or mutual funds, or if your funds allow you to maybe get into stocks and bonds, then you have a broader idea of how to build wealth in the future. Um, but that, so, so I would say that, that the financial education component is actually more relevant to watching how different groups of customers interact than the demographics of them. There are some demographic, uh, uh, similarities, but I would say that, that, that the more telling piece for these markets is the financial education part. That's interesting. So it's about life, life stage to a certain extent, more than, more than age, but tell me more about the financial education side of things um how i mean how do you approach that well um it's hard right because people don't go to banks to learn about money 
people, talk to friends and family members, and if they're lucky, a professor or somebody, or if they're really proactive, they'll study it. Um, and there's a lot of really wrong information out there. There's a lot of very good information, but it's easy to get sucked into a rabbit hole on any one of the social media platforms that we could name where people have very interesting, very well-spoken and very wrong information to offer to their audience. So um, the bank's role, I believe, is to make financial education available and interesting when the customer's looking for it. We're doing a pilot right now with a, this really interesting fintech based out of Mexico called Coru. And um, what we're doing with them is we're trying to study Kodu has this really interesting uh, kind of financial coach. It's kind of it's AI that looks at financial coaching. And they've been, I think, very successful in building a, a, a customer base of several million customers that want to uh, improve their financial position, understand their spending patterns, and understand how to build, build be better savers. Uh, and so we're, 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 we're working with them to kind of understand if that's the kind of a platform that we could embed or we could work with uh, to see if, if our ability to teach our customers when our customers want to learn about finances, because the, the, the flow is awesome, the information is awesome, the kind of questions they ask are awesome, um, and that's something that they do well that we don't. Uh, so I, it, I, I would say that, that, that more than a bank role, we have to kind of understand what the customer wants. And probably, um, as an industry, there's a continued responsibility to continue to focus on working with the industry to just quietly improve financial education, if, if that's at all a clear answer. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I guess it's a question of thinking about where your clients are getting their information from already, right? And, and seeing how you can leverage those channels. Yeah, um, it, I, I, yes, that, that are awesome. And there are any number of influences, influencers that are as empty as a paper bag in terms of the, the quality of what they're saying. Um, and, and I think that there would be a very, very fine line to be walked between partnering with an influencer to improve the customer's correct knowledge on managing their finance, even something as simple as always paying off your credit card and not carrying a balance. Uh, those things are, are important nuggets of information to have. But it's a fine line between partnering with that for the customer's benefit and being perceived to partner with an influencer because you want to drive more traffic. Yeah, that's interesting. That goes to a point about digital trust, which I was talking to someone else with, um, talking with someone else about the other day. That digital, that trust is kind of different in the digital world, and it's so critical when it comes to financial services, right? And I'll speak in generalities here. I think uh, prior to the overall impact of COVID in twenty twenty, the level of trust in digital channels in Colombia, as an example, was poor for any number of reasons. Um, mostly misconception, but probably also some really, really bad applications that just didn't work well or were open to hacking and fraud. What we saw is we saw people adopting our platform and our platform is robust, it's bulletproof, it's, it's all those things that a good bank needs it to be and migrating heavily during COVID. So they're kind of forced to trust it. And as soon as they learned that it was totally trustworthy and always had been it, and I can only speak for ours, the adoption and stickiness was huge. And at the end of the day, clients want their money to be sound. They want their data to be sound and they want to be able to have access when they need it. Right. 
So if they can't be hacked, if, if the software can't be hacked, if there's trust in the institution, and if there's trust in the sanctity of their data, I think that goes a long way to building digital trust because you can't sit down with Daniel Kennedy as a banking officer because I'm not there on the application, but the application has to provide the same security that having your funds in a steel vault would, would provide. Yeah, it's an interesting, um, interesting dynamic. So Daniel, looking ahead, what are some of the projects coming up or projects in, in the works at the moment that you're most excited about? So I think um, I'll speak at, at an industry level. I think everybody's trying to figure out what the next wave is of, of awesomeness. And, and that's exciting because we all tend to, to migrate to where customers want us to be. And so what I would like to see and what I'm certainly hoping we will build um, as an industry is a focus on being awesome at digital daily banking. And that is, and again, I'm, I'll speak in generalities here, It'd be very, very positive to have bankers sit down and say, let's stop talking about products and start talking about solutions. And let's stop thinking about them at a channel level and let's start thinking channel agnostic. So what does that mean? If I'm going to build a savings account, I cannot just build that digitally and I can't just build it in the traditional way. I have to sit down and say, my customer needs to be able to onboard and start using their savings account immediately. They need to be able to deposit funds at an ATM and all of the standard traditional components of pricing and accounting and all those components that are bank important should also have inherently built into them digital interactions for the customer's benefit. So every time that Katie deposits into the account, she gets a pop up saying you have just deposited $50 every time. Katie gets a transfer from her mother or, or from Daniel because he's paying, he's paying her back for lunch. She gets a notification. Um, and then there might be notifications on how to take the funds in her account and make them work better for her. So invest in this mutual fund or, or take the $1,000 that you've never used in the last two months and put it into a term deposit, right? So, so how can you make, how can you build a product that recognizes the journey and the potential journeys that a customer would want? And how do you stop talking about that product as something you're selling, but as a solution that is meeting the need of a customer and, and positioning it that way? So you mentioned at the start the trend of the, the Amazonification of finance. Do you see this next level of awesomeness as further going down that route of maybe looking at what those big tech companies are doing and, and taking your cues from it? Or do you think it's more a matter of thinking about something specific to the financial industry or maybe a mix of both? Um, I, I think it's a, I think it's a, a mix of both. Um, to me, I, I, I love big technology. I love what they've done. I love the way that they think. Um, and that, that's the way we, we in any bank need to think more of. But at the same time, um, what we have that fintechs don't have, we have huge customer bases that we're responsible to. So we can't, we can't do, and we also have shareholders that we're responsible to. So we have to ensure that we're able to test and learn on behalf of our customers without putting our fiduciary responsibilities to our regulators and our shareholders at risk. Uh, now, that being said, what does the customer want? They want security. They, they, want, they want that digital trust that you mentioned. And they also want to know that they're getting the best price for whatever they're doing. Right. So I think that there was a period in digital banking 
when digital banks charged with the earth for a personal loan taken online because they knew that a certain group of customers was willing to pay for that. You know, you can get a, a loan in five minutes. Hell, they'll pay whatever they'll pay. I think the Amazonification now points to um, the need for banks to think through digital specific pricing and digital specific risk policies as well. And that that steps away from the big tech picture because that goes back to what banks do well. Banks manage risk well, they manage portfolios well. And if there are savings for customers because they're able to do it online, the customer would want to see that savings reflected in the price they're paying. Super interesting, Daniel. Uh, we could keep talking, but unfortunately it's, well, it is time to move to the lightning round of quick questions. Are you ready? Yep. So which book are you reading right now? So I'm reading two. One is called The Club about uh, Samuel Johnson and the drinking club that he created in the late, in the latter part of the 18th century uh, with some really, really brilliant folks at the time, including Adam Smith and and, and others. So it, it's, it's an awesome book. I've just started it. Um, and I'm beginning, I'm finishing up a book called, uh, it's a book on wit and the, the name has just escaped me. The one I have waiting in the wings is Stephen Fry's book on gods and heroes. Fantastic. Daniel, what's the best piece of professional advice that you've been given? If you take a job and it doesn't make you take a deep breath, it's not right for you. So if you're being offered a position and you know from the outset that you're not getting butterflies and that nod of anxiety in your stomach, it's probably not a job you can stay with for a long time. Oh, super interesting. Daniel, what's the app that you use most? Probably Waze. No, sorry, my, my it would be my, uh, my podcast app. Wonderful. What's your favorite podcast? Right now, I'm really enjoying the Wall Street Journal in Spanish, which is a great way of just getting additional news on Latin America through some journals that are awesome and, and have really interesting insights. I will look it up. Awesome. Daniel, uh, when will we stop using cash? I don't know if we'll ever stop using cash. Um, if I look at the small business owners in the four countries I work with, they there's enough of a green market there that they'll always be receiving a certain level of cash in payment. And so um, I, I think that, that for the foreseeable future, well into the 21st century, cash will be a part of our lives. Finally, who else would you recommend we have on the show? I'm a big fan of Chris Colbert. He's a, a thought leader in the space that just is, has a different way of looking at leadership and at being a transformative leader. The other one is, is a good buddy of mine by the name of Dave Dame, who's an agile practitioner, who is um, a brilliant mind, a great thinker, um, and a really, really thoughtful leader when it comes to transforming teams to make them the best that they need to be, but also making sure that they deliver. Perfect. Daniel, look, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Really appreciate you joining us. All the best, Katie. Take care of yourself. It's wonderful to reconnect, and I look forward to hearing the, uh, the outcome of this and all future podcasts. Wonderful. And thank you for tuning in to this new series of VNext Remix. Be sure to follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and turn on notifications to be the first to hear the next episode. And don't forget this year, VNext Remix is also being produced in Spanish. The next episode will be en español. And after that, we'll be back in English with more VNext Remix insights.